fellow assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So I hope you guys are getting excited because we are officially in June, and that means WWDC is uh, in a couple days. Um, When this podcast goes live on Saturday, we will be two days away from WWDC, and you know that next week we will have coverage about the event Uh, right here on the Dark Assassins podcast. So make sure that you tune in to uh, catch that coverage. Uh, But to start off this week's episode, let's get into this week's trivia question. So this week's trivia question is, who is considered to be the father of the World Wide Web? So that thing that you uh, use your internet browser to search and use, the World Wide Web, who is considered to be the founder? That is your trivia question for the week. Now, I know uh, I- I've talked about it, I guess, a little bit. Uh, when, I- when I talked about my XServe raid uh, and getting that fully working, whenever that was, like a couple weeks ago, um, recently, well, I guess part of that, I kind of got the idea that, uh, I, I should, I should do something about that aside from, uh, just making the flashy, flashy, blinky Christmas lights. So, um, XServe fan, fans of XServe content and, uh, my blog reader enthusiasts, uh, will be happy to hear that uh, I have something cooking for you guys. So uh, you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. Now, uh, the the funny thing about the blog is it's something that I have, but uh, I basically never... I, I don't say never update because in all honesty, I, I update it significantly more than any of my social media accounts. Um, I update those like... Gosh, like I think at this point it's lucky if I update it once a year, um, and I think some of them I haven't touched in coming up on two years at this point. So uh, been a minute on those, but the blog, on the other hand, it's been updated a a couple times, a few times. It's like may, like at worst it's like maybe a yearly thing, and then at best it's like maybe quarterly. Um, it's it's kind of one of those things where if I get an idea for something, um, I might do something about it. But I figured Xserve Raid, that's pretty cool. Um, so when's it going to be out? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I prefer it to be out kind of soon, but you know how these things go. Um, might be a little bit, might... Let's just say uh, I guess you'll hear about it uh, when it happens. Um, but yeah, I got, I got that cooking. Um, I think I have a, a decent amount of it done at this point. I got like some of the the background and like intro stuff. Uh, but at some point here, I'll have to uh, fire that beast up again um, and get some some screenshots and whatnot to uh, 
to add to it, you know, how it works and how to configure it and all that stuff. Um, so there, there is still some more work to do, uh, but it, it is at least, it ha- at least has a good, good head start to it. Um, but with that out of the way, let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, I figured since we've, we talked a lot in the past about ways to protect yourself to prevent against cyber attacks, but just as important to prevent against cyber attacks is to have a plan if and or when a cyber attack occurs or any kind of hack or ransomware, any of that happens. You want to make sure you have a plan in place so if it happens, you you know what to do because the last thing you want to have happen is uh, ransomware come in and wreck your system and you're freaking out you have no idea what to do and because you don't have a plan it jumps to another device on your network and then it jumps to another one and now it's on your NAS and now all your backups are gone so you you want to make sure that you have some kind of plan in place um, in the event that some kind of cyber attack happens so there's a few steps that any good Uh, incident response plan will have and the first thing is to make sure you lock everything down and when we say lock everything down if you have if if you know it's only on one machine you basically want to isolate that thing as quick as possible make sure it's not connected to the network Um, maybe even power it off you just you just want to make sure you get Get it isolated to limit the uh, attack surface and the attack vector uh, that the attacker or the malware or whatever can spread to. Because the the quicker you can contain it, the easier it'll be to clean things up. Because if you only have to deal with recovering one machine, that's a lot easier than having to recover every machine in your house or every machine in your network or everything in your home lab or whatever the case may be. Um, the less machines you have to recover, the better. So ideally, you want to lock everything down as quickly as possible. So that is the first thing you want to do. And then the second thing you want to do is you want to make sure you have some kind of priority in place of recovery processes. So if, say, your NAS went down and your personal computer went down and then maybe a your... VM for Jellyfin went down, you're probably going to have a priority of which ones you want back. Uh, You know, whether that's your NAS you want back because you want other devices to connect back to it, or you need your personal computer back because you want to do some some personal projects, or you have some uh, schoolwork due, or you have your taxes that need to be done, or, you know, some other thing that you need your personal computer for, um, that would probably be pretty high on the priority list. Uh, but unfortunately, as fun as Jellyfin is to uh, stream your content from, it's probably not as high on the priority list as some of the other things that could be there. So that's something you want to to know is what, what order do you prioritize stuff when it comes to recovering stuff. Um, so obviously the things that are more critical, you're going to want to make sure those get recovered first. Um, and then once you 
kind of recover from the attack, you you want to analyze what happened. You want to figure out how did this hack attack in the hack attack hack attack how did this attack happen in the first place and what can be done in the future to prevent it so was it you were going around on them sketchy websites and accidentally clicked the big green download button and ran the executable or did you fall for a phishing attack or did you have an open port on your router to some application that shouldn't have been exposed to the internet um, was it your uh, a flaw in your web browser? You know, there's a lot of potential ways that an attack could occur and, and get you. So you want to identify what the attack vector was that got you. And by, by understanding that, you can understand how to improve your security. So maybe um, if it was that application that had a port open on the firewall you know okay i'm going to close that port off and make sure that application isn't you know accessible to the internet or maybe you had uh, an application that was fine being accessible to the internet but it was kind of lagging behind on the security updates and it got you know exploited through one of those so you now you know all right i'd really need to make sure i keep updated on my, all my security patches and whatnot or maybe uh you clicked on a phishing attack and uh you know okay well next time i need to make sure that i closer inspect the uh the urls that i'm clicking on and sites that i'm navigating to so just kind of analyzing what went wrong and that way you can better understand how to prevent something like this from happening in the future. So hopefully that was was helpful. I know we talk a lot about how to prevent cyber attacks, but you know, if an attack happens to you, it's just as important uh, to know how to recover from one as well. So that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, this next thing, I'm not really quite sure of uh, who needs to hear this, but uh, I know I definitely needed to hear it this week, so that's why I'm bringing it up. And uh, this advice that I'm gonna give is for the developers out there, myself included, because I definitely needed it this week, and that is uh, suck it up and code. Now, that is a pretty uh, bold and inconsiderate statement. So allow me to explain myself a little bit. So when I say suck it up and code, I think it's safe to say that no matter where you are in your software development journey, whether you are new to software development, you're taking classes in high school or undergrad or learning online by yourself, uh, whether you're a junior developer at some company, whether you're a senior developer, it doesn't matter. You're going to run into a situation where you're going to be tasked with either working in a new programming language, uh, working with a new framework, working, um, working with a new code base. I mean, you're going to run into some kind of scenario where quite honestly you have absolutely no idea what you're doing 
And it doesn't matter how much programming experience you have. If you are tasked with writing in a language you've never used before or coding for a code base you've never touched before, um, it's it, it doesn't matter who you are. It's going to take time to come up to speed and actually figure out what the heck you're doing. Now, the reason why I say suck it up and code is because whining and complaining about the fact that you have no idea what you're doing and throwing your hands up ain't going to write the code any faster. I mean, the code's not going to write itself, right? Unless, I guess, you're using ChatGPT in which that is code because it's AI and it's writing code itself. Um, but if you've ever used ChatGPT to write code for you, um, let's just say it's e you have a couple possibilities for your outcome. Either one, it works, but the, uh, the quality is sometimes suspect. Um, so that's like a best case scenario. Um, a more average case scenario is like it, I, I, the concept's kind of there, but it doesn't quite do what you want. Other times it won't even compile at all. Other times it's not even what you asked. Um, and the other thing you have to keep in mind too is any kind of query or any kind of code snippet you give it it's going into the big AI database heap in the supercomputer somewhere in the cloud, AWS, Google, Azure, you know, wherever. It's, it's going somewhere, um, and that's just going to be used to train future models. So if you're using... Uh, there, well, I guess I'll just say there's a reason why the the larger tech companies such as like Apple, Google, uh, AWS, and the like don't let their software developers use AI tools like ChatGPT to help them write their code because you're just asking for your code base or parts of the code base to be leaked out into the ether by asking these AI tools to help you with your code. So no, the code is not going to write itself, and it shouldn't write itself because you're just asking for problems. So with that out of the way, yeah, the code's not going to write itself. The only way the code is going to be written is if you, the software developer tasked with writing it, actually writes the code. So just sitting at your desk or at your computer or coffee shop or wherever you're coding and just whining and complaining about it is, is not going to, to write that code. Now, on the one hand, I guess you could say that you just kind of need to take a minute to have an existential crisis and have a mental breakdown, and then you can get into the code and actually knock some stuff out. In that case, if that's what it's going to take, then I guess by all means. Um, but uh, yeah, whining and complaining is, uh, is, is not going to do it. Because one thing that I've noticed in my personal experience, both uh, working on personal projects, school projects, and professionally, is when I throw my hands up, it, it's just not productive 
at all. I like I and I can't tell you how many times I've experienced have have dealt with people that will look at look at the code, work at it for like a couple minutes, run into an error, try to fix it, still doesn't work and then they just basically just give up. And that that's not the attitude that you want to have because if you give up at the slightest you know, little bit of inconvenience and code not working. Um, boy, uh, I, I have some, uh, <laughs> let's just say uh, your your career, your future career endeavors might not be as, as bright as, as you think they'll be. I mean, I'm, that might sound harsh, but that, that's just how it is. Like you're going to be expected uh, to be able to deal with adversities and, and learn code bases and that you don't know and you know power through problems that you have that's just that's just you know part of the part of the thing right so and a large part of being a software developer is the problem solving aspect like there will be times where you'll be in a quote unquote coding session and you might only write like a couple lines of code if that because you're trying to solve a problem and figure out what you need to do or you're you're hunting bugs or something like that sometimes you'll be in a coding session for hours and if it if you're going purely based on lines of code written it would look like you did absolutely nothing because you were trying to solve problems so if you don't have the ability to solve problems you're going to find it very difficult to be a successful software developer. So which is again where the idea of suck it up and code comes into play because personally for me I've noticed that like when I run into a problem that I don't know how to solve basically what I'll do is just head down, hands on the keyboard and just go ham just right into the code, just diving into it and just hacking away at it, beating my head against the wall, trying to get it to work. And eventually it, it somehow, some way, uh, it manages to work itself out and I get it to work. Now, I guess a couple tips that I have when it comes to uh, just sucking it up in code. Because one thing I guess that I've kind of talked about today, and I think I might have mentioned in the past, um, there's a lot more to coding and software development than strictly just click-clacking away on the keyboard and writing lines of code, writing if statements, writing for loops, and all that good stuff. Um, There's a lot of problem-solving, a lot of bug-fixing, a lot of understanding what the code does, a lot of researching. There's a lot more work that goes into quote-unquote coding than uh, just typing away on a keyboard. Um, So when I run into instances like this where I have no idea what the heck I'm doing um, and I don't know what the code base does, or I don't know what the framework does, or how to use it, or I've never used the programming language before, and I'm trying to figure out how to use it. My go-to solution for that is basically hack the code up and just mangle it all to heck 
and uh, figure out what it does. Now, we've talked in the past about how crucial a debugger is, and a debugger probably couldn't be any more, couldn't be much more useful. Um, I mean, it, it is very useful for solving bugs and finding bugs and that kind of a thing, but it's also super useful for stepping through line by line in the code and figuring out what each line does, checking, you know, what variables are at certain instances, um, stepping into different functions and seeing how the functions work. So basically, when when I'm tasked with something like that, I will just hack the code up, either put a bunch of print statements in there to uh, figure out where things are, what things are doing, um, use the debugger, like I mentioned, to kind of do the same principle, um, and really just like dive head in and just envelop myself in the code, not really even actually writing any code, but just like going in and understanding what the code's doing, you know, jumping to definitions of functions, looking at, you know, different function calls, the documentation, if any exists, um, looking, reading the comments in the code and just really just trying to understand what the heck it's doing, because the sooner you can understand what the code's doing and what the code base is doing or how the programming language is implementing certain things, the sooner you'll be able to actually write code for that framework, that code base, that programming language, and the sooner you can do that, the the sooner you'll uh, encounter bugs, and the sooner you encounter bugs, you know, the, and if, the more you know the code base, the better you'll be able to understand what might be causing those bugs and help track them down. So really, at the end of the day, if you don't know what the heck you're doing, you really only have one option, and that is just to batten down the hatches, lock yourself in a room or at your desk or just, just it's just you and the code, just get into it because it's not going to, at least as of right now, uh, there's no way for you to download the entire knowledge base of the code base and how it works and all the ins and outs so you can instantly be up to speed on how it works. That That's unfortunately uh, not how things work right now. So the only way that you can really understand what you're doing is just to basically put it, put in the time and the effort uh, to understand it. Now, if you have uh, people that you can talk to and ask questions to, that's also a pretty valuable, a pretty valuable resource. Um, but sometimes I've even found that I get better results just by banging my head against the wall and just hammering it out until I get it to work. Um, since I've had instances in the past where um, I've asked questions about, you know, certain problems I was having and uh, pretty much didn't get anywhere and then just beat my head against the wall with the code for a while and eventually figured it out. Um, one instance I remember pretty pretty vividly uh, was one time back in college. I uh, 
for whatever reason, my code wasn't working, and I went to, I was emailing with my professor and even went to their office hours and sat down with them for probably at least half hour, 45 minutes, maybe a little more, um, and they couldn't figure it out, and the assignment was due like in a couple days, and you know what I did? I sucked it up, beat my head against the wall, pounded away at the code, and you know what happened? My professor did not answer me back, didn't help me. I figured it out on my own and uh, got it done, which is basically how I've kind of learned to operate is uh, if I don't ha- if I don't know how something works, just got to go into uh, don't talk to me mode and just stare, dive head on into the code and just really get into it, figure out what it's doing, and just hack away at it uh, until it works. So I'm not sure uh, if anyone out there needed to hear this message or if this was just a message for myself, Um, but if you're ever just stuck and the code's not working and you don't understand it, really the only solution you have is just to just do it, you know? Nike, just do it. Yeah. This was, it, this was actually uh, this whole thing was just a long ploy uh, for for the the Nike sponsorship that that is totally uh, happening right now, and I'm not just making this up as a mere coincidence. Um, yeah, it's just a mere coincidence. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I maybe that maybe uh, it doesn't work for you to just uh, suck it up in code. Uh, maybe, but I mean, in some instances you, you don't really have a choice. Um, if, if you're kind of the only developer, uh, around, um, like if you're working on a personal project, for example, uh, working in a, a, a working with a new library or a new framework for a personal project, you don't exactly have any senior developers on your team to turn to if it's literally just you. Uh, so in those cases, you're, you're pretty much your only option is to suck it up in code and uh, just figure it out yourself. And and honestly, by figuring it out yourself, I, I think there's a there's a real value to that that you learn a lot not only about the code base but you also learn a lot about yourself and how you figure out for yourself the best ways that you can uh learn and the the fastest ways that you can uh figure things out is just by by doing it yourself um there's i think there's a reason why there's i don't remember exactly what the saying is but basically you know if you kind of the idea of if you worked hard for something, the reward of getting that something is a lot a lot nicer and you treasure it a lot more than if someone just gave it to you, right? I think I think it's the same thing, you know, with coding and software development too. Like if someone just shows you and tells you how to do something, yeah, it's nice and easy and saves you some time, but if you actually have to go through and put in the work to bang your head against the wall, fail a bunch, and figure out how everything works, then once you actually get it to work, the payoff is, I think in the long run, is definitely a lot better since you, it throughout that whole process, became a better developer because of all the work that you had to put in to figure out what what the issue was or how the code base worked. And it just just overall makes you a lot 
better of a developer um, by just sucking it up and coding, uh, I guess you could say. Um, so yeah, that was, I guess, my advice for anyone that needed to hear it. Um, so I guess with that, would I guess we can get into uh, what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So this week, um, I've kind of mentioned, you know, working on that uh, special blog post, I guess, with the excerpt raid. Uh, but the other thing I did was I, I've been talking a decent amount over the uh, the past couple weeks about kind of redoing some of the Pokemon code for the game I'm working on and trying to optimize everything. And I think I pretty much got it back to the state of working and functionality that it was in before I started this whole like rewrite process so I got like so basically everything that the uh I guess more bloated uh versions of the how I was representing Pokemon those classes uh I pretty much fully swapped and switched over to the more streamlined and optimized versions and have everything working as it was uh, before I started that transition. So I think we're we're pretty much in a pretty good state there. Um, so that was that was pretty good to see. Um, and speaking of you know kind of redoing and refactoring stuff, that kind of leads me into another topic that I wanted to talk about. Uh, I guess another message to the developers out there. Um, when it comes to refactoring your code, the key is don't cheap out on it when it comes to refactoring. Uh, like Basically, don't let a temporary fix or a hack become your long-term solution because... I guess I guess we we can do is we can take a step back here and talk about for those who might not be software developers um, what the heck is refactoring and why do you do it? So when you're writing software, the chances of you writing something perfectly in the most optimal way for the the given problem on the first try is generally not super high. Um, in which case you get through working other parts of the code and then you realize, oh, you know, my original solution isn't going to work here or, oh, I figured out a, a better way that I can implement this or I, f I found a new algorithm that works better or I want to use this data structure to uh, improve the, uh, the usability or whatever the case may be, you come up with a better idea of how to implement something you already did. So you essentially go back and rewrite the code. And that's essentially what refactoring is. Now, there's there's different stages. There's like complete rewrites where you basically redo everything from the ground up um, there's other rewrites where you might just redo like a couple functions or something there's different levels uh, when it comes to refactoring but one thing that I myself am guilty of and I'm sure a lot of other developers out there are also guilty of which is not a good thing is you'll be in the process of refactoring your code and 
you break a lot of stuff, which I mean, obviously that that comes with the territory of rewriting parts of your code. Uh, You wrote it to work one way. So if you change how it works, it's obviously not going to work anymore. So by rewriting maybe just one function, that'll kind of lead you down this rabbit hole of having to rewrite other parts of your code elsewhere, which in some cases, if you're doing a lot of refactoring, you can find yourself either writing in hacked, like hacks or te- or quote-unquote temporary fixes. Um, emphasis on the temporary because we all know those temporary fixes end up staying in the code base long term and become your permanent solution. Um, but the goal of the temporary fix is to be kind of a stopgap while you work on other parts of the code to be kind of a bridge uh, to allow your code to still work while you rewrite portions of it. And the problem is, once your code is working again with your refactor done, it's very easy to either forget that you even put the temporary fixes in in the first place, Or you're just so happy that the code finally works after hours or days of it not working while you refactor it that you're just so happy it works. You're like, all right, I'm done. I can move on um, with those temporary fixes, uh, if you can call them that, uh, still in the code. And generally, these are not very clean solutions, right? Like you'll have magic numbers in there. And for those who uh, aren't developers, a magic number is a any kind of number that isn't a variable. So if, for example, if you're writing a, uh, a networking program, rather than having a variable called port, and whenever you need to reference the port number saying port, Uh, Instead, you would use a magic number or say if your port's like 8080, you would have 8080 mixed throughout your code. And the reason why this is uh, uh, not a good idea is because if for whatever reason you need to change that port number, you now have to go back through all of your code, all your classes, all your functions everywhere and figure out where you put that 8080 magic number and change it. Whereas if you used a variable, you just have to change where the variable gets initialized and you're good to go. So yeah, sometimes temporary fixes or hacked approaches will, if they don't do something specifically like that with magic numbers, they'll do something to the same effect where it's generally not the best coding practice, But uh, at the end of the day, yes, it technically works and gets the job done, but it's not exactly the cleanest or most elegant solution. And the reason why you, in my opinion anyway, you don't want to have these is because the whole point of the refactoring process was to improve your code, not make parts of it worse. Because if you make parts of it worse, then you're just going to end up going back and redoing those parts later, potentially. And then that could make you potentially have other, quote, temporary fixes. And then it just 
kind of spirals out of control and next thing you know your entire code base is a bunch of temporary fixes and your code base is just a, a big old plate of spaghetti and um if you've ever tried to work with a spaghetti code base, you know that it is, one, not fun, two, it's basically impossible to do any kind of productive work that, because everything's all over the place, so trying to figure it out and kind of untangle the spaghetti is a process in and of itself. So the more temporary hacked fixes you have, the more likely your code's going to turn into a bunch of spaghetti. So you may want to make sure that you don't have, you don't keep those temporary fixes in there. And the ideal solution would be you just, I say write the code right the first time, but... When I say that, I obviously don't mean that like you can never go back and refactor it because that's uh, kind of an inevitability, but rather just try not to put a hacked solution in there in the first place. Um, like in the case for the uh, the refactoring that I was doing with my code, rather than trying to do a some kind of hacked temporary solution, Basically, what I did was I just essentially wrote a complete new suite of test cases and different tests to verify the new code that I wrote worked as intended before I started swapping over everything in the main code base uh, to the new version. So that way, I basically prevented myself from have to, having any of these temporary or hacked fixes in there. Uh, because trust me, I definitely easily uh, could have had some hacked fixes in there. And I was kind of tempted at some points, but I was like, nope, uh, I'm going to be good this time. And I'm, I'm not going to do that um, because I, I've done it before <laughs> where I've uh, redone some code and realized parts of it weren't working. So I added a quote, temporary fix um, that ended up being part of the permanent solution, um, which obviously is not that great. Um, so yeah, if you're ever planning on refactoring your code or a code base for work or for school or whatever the case may be, try to do it right the first time um, in the sense that you don't put any temporary fixes in there. Um, if you're going to need to do some kind of temporary fixes, I think it's probably better to test everything like while you're doing the refactor to make sure it works kind of siloed off I guess if you will and then once everything's working as it should and the refactor is done then you can move that and migrate it in to the rest of the code base so you don't have to worry about even putting any temporary fixes in um, and with that I want there was one other thing that uh, kind of caught my attention this week that I thought was quite uh, interesting to talk about, and that is this whole drama going on right now with the Dolphin emulator and Nintendo. So if you haven't heard about this story, basically Nintendo is blocking the release of the Dolphin emulator from Steam, um, so Steam, if you're if you're not aware, is a way that you can like download uh, games and whatnot uh, for your computer. Um, 
So, and the Dolphin emulator is an emulator that allows you to play uh, Wii and GameCube games um, without actually needing a Wii or GameCube, the physical hardware to play them on. Um, so the reason why Nintendo, I guess, one of the main reasons why they're citing uh, the reason for this takedown is uh, basically the, I guess, the, the Dolphin emulator, uh, it makes use of a Wii common key uh, in the emulation, which basically actively bypasses the piracy protection measures. Um, so basically allows you, I guess, to have pirated games or whatever, um, or ROMs or whatnot. So Nintendo said, um, the, with Dolphin using, uh, in regards to Dolphin, I guess, using these keys, uh, cryptographic keys without Nintendo's authorization, um, and decrypting the ROMs at or immediately before runtime, um, thus, the use of the Dolphin emulator is unlawful and circumvents the technological measures that effectively control access to a work protected under copy under the Copyright Act. So, basically, Nintendo's stance on this is the Dolphin emulator is circumventing some cryptographic checks they have in there to make sure the ROMs are legit, um, which... Like, I, I, I guess I can say I understand where they're coming from in that sense. But I guess on the other hand, um, if it's literally that easy to uh, bypass um, your, I guess, security checks to make sure that the, the games you're playing are quote-unquote legitimate, um, I mean, can you really blame them uh, for doing that? Now, I have heard some people uh, say that, you know, maybe rather than actually putting these keys in the code base of Dolphin itself, you would have to, like, supply your own or something like that. Um, but I guess this comes down... The, the whole argument uh, um, that, that's kind of being made, which... Um, and I guess I think in a yeah, in this IGN article, which I also have linked down in the show notes, um, where Nintendo is saying using illegal emulators or illegal copies of games harms development and ultimately stifles innovation. Nintendo respects the intellectual property and rights of other companies, and in turn expects others to do the same. Which, first off, I think we have to say that the the use of like emulators in general is kind of a gray area but the use of an emulator on the premise of using an emulator is not illegal which if you're ever trying to do any kind of testing for some machine some machine type an embedded system a video game console if you don't actually have the hardware itself to test your code on you need to use an emulator to emulate what it's like to run the code so for example um we've talked in the past about uh on on max and whatnot they have uh apple provides an xcode um emulators for ios and ipads and i believe the apple watch 2 and apple tv and we also talked about one thing i was curious about is how they would impu implement some kind of 
emulator or simulator to for the virtual reality, mixed reality, or whatever they're calling it, the, the headset, which is supposedly rumored uh, to be coming out in a couple days or at least be announced. Um, and that was one thing I was interested in. Now, you can also make the argument there that those emulators are legitimate because they're made by Apple for Apple devices. So, sure, that is a, a legitimate argument. Um, but on the premise, emulation is not illegal. Now, the main kind of gray area you get into is just like last week's episode where we talked about um, piracy is how do you acquire the games or the ROMs for the games that you are then playing in the emulator? And that's, I think, where the main gray area comes into play but um just a a quick news flash for nintendo here um you don't sell any wii games or gamecube games like it's literally not possible at least that i know of at the moment for you to buy a nintendo wii or gamecube game from nintendo so if there's no means for you to purchase a game from the creator of the game, you could also you could make the argument there that downloading it illegally is kind of your only option if you want to play it. Now, you could also make the argument that you could buy a used console if you don't already have one and then buy a used game on eBay. But at that point, Nintendo's not getting the money anyway, right? If you buy a used game off eBay, Nintendo's not getting any of that money. If you download a copy from the internet illegally, Nintendo's not getting any of that money. And it's not like Nintendo can sell you the game anyway, so they're not going to get any money regardless of how you acquire said game. So some would argue that ethically speaking... If the company were, so in this case, Nintendo, if you were to illegally download a game, a Nintendo game that Nintendo does not sell and there's no way for you to buy the game from Nintendo, ethically, you're not doing anything wrong because it's not like you're stealing from them because they're literally not providing you any means uh, to get the game. So an example of this, um, well, not specifically Wii or GameCube related, I guess, is um, say you wanted to play um, Pokemon Emerald or Pokemon Fire Red or Pokemon Sapphire, any of the the Gen 3 uh, Pokemon games. Unlike some of the other older gens one and two where they had them available uh for digital download which i guess technically since the eShop on the 3ds shut down i don't i don't think they're available to to buy anymore um so that i guess you could maybe even rope those in too but i know for sure at least at this, this recording that uh the gen 3 pokemon games there it's literally impossible to download a digital copy on any of the newer consoles from Nintendo, and obviously Nintendo won't sell you a physical cartridge of the game. So literally, if you want to play one of those games, your only option 
is to go on eBay or some other uh, third-party marketplace or used marketplace and buy a game that way. Or you could buy a replica cartridge from somewhere over in China for dirt cheap. But again, that's not a legitimate copy either. Or you could illegally download the ROM and play it on an emulator. Um, and one of the benefits to playing older games on emulators is you get the basically all the luxuries um, that modern hardware can provide. So you can get better resolutions, better frame rates. Um, there, there's a lot of benefits, like legitimate benefits, um, that people have, uh, that you can have playing on emulators and why people do it. But the other thing that it goes back to also, as we talked about last week with the uh, the efficacy and the ethics of pirating like movies and TV shows is what if you already own the game like what if say uh, so in this case Nintendo um, say you already owned um, M or NFL to Madden NFL 2006 or whatever say you already owned that GameCube game but you wanted to play it in higher resolution um, with you know, better frame rates um, on a bigger screen on your on your TV. So you want to you want to put it in the in the Dolphin emulator, and you already own the game, uh, but you have no means to get the ROM or the game data off of the disc that you already own. Um, in that case, you could, if if you download the game uh, illegally, technically you're pirating pirating it and committing a crime. But uh, as we already mentioned, it's not like Nintendo sells that to you, so it's not like you can actually buy the game new, so it's not like you're stealing any revenue that they would have otherwise made. And also, you literally already bought the game. You already own the game. Um, so there are some definitely... There's definitely valid arguments for both sides of the emulator debate, um, but I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that if you already own like say you already own the console like for example um, I have both a GameCube and a Wii um, if I wanted to you know play you know games on an emulator I mean technically if that emulator according to Nintendo is you using like illegally acquired keys or something to bypass uh, security checks or whatnot I mean I already own the hardware um, so if I wanted to play the game on the actual hardware, I could, um, and similarly, it's, it's the same thing with the games too. If I already own the game, um, and I wanted to play it in, in an emulator for some reason, rather than real hardware, I mean, I already own the game. I already gave you the money for it. Um, but then on the other side, you know, Nintendo makes the argument, uh, that you're, you're stealing from developers and whatnot. But I think... While that is definitely a hundred percent valid uh, in in every sense of the in every sense of the argument, I think the the main hole in their argument. Again, I'm not a lawyer for any of this legal stuff going on. Um, I think the biggest hole in their argument is the fact that they literally provide zero way for you to actually buy the game from them. So. Like, even if you, like, as I mentioned, right, even if you acquire the hardware and the game legitimately 
through some third party or for from some reseller or something it's not like nintendo or any other you know game company or whatever is making money off of that transaction so it's not like you're stealing from them anyway um so i think that's potentially where um they have a hole at least in kind of the uh the ethical realm uh in the legal realm i have no i i, I have no uh legal opinion on that since as i mentioned i'm not i'm uh, not a lawyer um but that that's kind of i i figured it was you know something in the technology uh realm we've talked about uh video games in the past and it kind of ties in with last last week's episode also um so i i am kind of interested to see where this goes uh but this isn't the first time that nintendo has kind of thrown a fit over emulators and emulating video games um which i mean the the thing is like if you want new if you want younger people to experience these older games pretty much the only way to do that is through emulation and that'll expose them to you know older games and maybe kind of get the experience well I guess not the experience it's not the real hardware um but in some cases like it's cost there's a cost prohibitive aspect um to playing retro games um I mean if you look at some of the uh, the prices for like used consoles and used games I mean it's like way more expensive than like new games that are like out now that you can actually buy um so it can be pretty cost prohibitive for someone that wants to play these older games but doesn't have either the hardware to play them or the actual physical copies of the games which is where emulation could come into play and allow them to have that experience Uh, but again i mean it's not like Nintendo is selling GameCubes or selling Wiis anymore or selling any of the games for those consoles. So it's not like you down you know downloading an emulator that someone made or downloading a ROM that someone uploaded of a game that you want to play that is no longer sold anywhere. Um, it's not like you're stealing revenue that the company would have otherwise made uh, if you didn't, you know, download it right Um, now obviously that's completely different if you are say downloading a uh uh, i don't even know if there's like ps5 emulators out there but let's say hypothetically you had a ps5 emulator for your computer uh with your your uh, rtx 4090 and your uh intel 13900k or you you know your beefed out max machine right um and you download a playstation emulator and you download a bunch of roms from the latest ps5 games uh then you can uh definitely um you definitely don't have the ethical argument on your side in that case uh, that is for sure because obviously those games and the console is still being sold uh, by sony and by the developers and whatnot so in that case you are definitely uh, stealing from people because the you can obviously still buy that stuff um but yeah, um, when it, but when it comes to older stuff, um, there's definitely a lot more 
gray area, I guess you could say. And there's definitely arguments to be made on both sides. Um, and I guess uh, since I don't have a good way to uh, wrap this segment up, I'm just going to leave it up to you, the listener, the fellow assassin listening to this, to decide uh, what you think about uh this whole situation with Nintendo and uh, the Dolphin emulator and emulating old older games such as Wii and GameCube games. Um, but before we leave for this week, uh, let's get back to our trivia question, which is who is considered to be the father of the World Wide Web? And if you said Tim Berners-Lee, you are correct. And the reason why he's considered to be the founder of the World Wide Web is because he did a lot of work in pioneering and developing the foundations for the web. So this is things like the, the HTTP or the hypertext uh, transfer protocol that's used uh, on the web, and also the HTML or the hypertext markup language, which is uh, kind of the main way that if you if you ever write a website yourself, uh, you're going to be using a lot of HTML uh, for that, which is kind of like uh, now I guess you could argue there's more JavaScript in there, but um, when uh, the websites that I work and maintain, and like I mentioned, the blog post I'm writing that is all not a hundred percent HTML. Uh, but all the code that I write for it is basically 100% HTML, um, and he also uh, was did work on the on the first web browser too. Um, so that is the the trivia question. Tim Berners Lee, um, father of the World Wide Web, and uh, that's going to do it for this episode. So if you enjoyed, I ask that you leave a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. Since you're not going to want to miss next week when we cover WWDC. Uh, also be sure to share this episode with a friend or family member. Maybe you have uh, a developer you know that needs to hear any of the messages, either of the messages that we talked about. Um, whether it's suck it up in code or how to refactor the right way. Um, and if you have any questions about this episode or you have any topics or ideas for future episodes, feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There is a link, as always, in the show notes down below for that. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast. <laughs>